Morning, church. It's fantastic to have you this morning. Um, let's begin with prayer. Father, we thank you for today. We thank you that you have done great things uh, through this church. And we thank you that we anticipate you continuing to work. Lord, as we look forward, we think about what's happening here currently and what could be happening. We just ask that your spirit would would drive and move us deeper into the foundation that we need to be rooted in so that we can build up and go forth like never before. As we turn to your word this morning, we ask that we would be moved and molded by it. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. So, I'm going to just give you a quick word of warning. I'm probably going to be all over the place the next two weeks. For one reason. What we're going to look at this week and next week are verses that I've shared with a couple different people that are currently um, just rocking me. Uh, not, Not in a... And not in a not in a negative way. Right? I'm not being I'm not being broken by them. Well, I am sort of being broken by them, but I'm being more pushed, shoved might be the better word. And so, whenever I whenever I get to a place where I I, I feel like God is just shouting at me, I I, I tend to be a little bit more all over the place in my sermons. And so I'm just going to give you a warning ahead of time so that you can know what's happening. We're going to look at two verses this week, and we're going to look at one verse next week. And, and at the end of next week's sermon, I think we might ask the question, I, I feel like you should have flopped these, but I have a reason why we're doing this one first. Turn to Matthew chapter 28 this morning. We're going to look at verses 16 to 20. And then we're going to look at Acts chapter 1, verses 6 to 11. So if you want to get ahead of the game and find Acts chapter 1, verse 6 to 11, you can put your finger there and, and jump back to Matthew. I'll give you just a second, and then I'm going to read. Matthew 28, verse 16 to 20. This is, this is what we call the Great Commission. It says, Now... The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, this is where we need to pay attention, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now let's jump forward to Acts chapter 1. I lost my connection, Jeff. Acts chapter 1, verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Heavenly Father, again, we ask that you would be very present with us this morning, as your word has promised. That the authority that was given to you that now dwells with us that the power of the Spirit would speak mightily and move us greatly. It's in Jesus' name. I want to tell you a little bit about the story. The story. Not a story. The story. The story is the story of Jesus, right? The story of Jesus doesn't start with Jesus on the cross. It starts earlier. I think we could go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1 for this story. God creates. It says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we go on to find that God spoke and he said, let there be light, light. Let there be an expanse, expanse. Let there be land. Let there be stars, the sun, the moon. Let there be plants and grass, vegetation. Let there be animals, birds, fish, livestock. Creeping things. And then God, God pauses and he shifts the way he's been talking. And he says, 
Let us make man in our image. And he makes man. Male and female, he created them, it says. And when God finishes all the things that he creates, when he spoke into existence light and space and land and animals and fish and birds and plants, he said, this is good. This is good. This is good. This is good. Then he creates man. He places man at the culmination of his creation. He gives man dominion over the earth. He says, multiply, fill, and subdue it. Theologically, what God is saying here is he's saying, you are to be what makes this place important. We are, in building terminology, the capstone of God's creation. We're the thing that makes it all work. Capstone is when you build an archway, right? Build this archway, and the stones need a place to balance in the middle. And when you put that last stone in there, it'll hold itself up and actually becomes one of the strongest structures that you can build. The capstone of God's creation. But that only makes sense in light of who God actually is. God is the creator of everyone and everything. In no other situation, in no other circumstance... Have we ever looked at some, some person who has created and some thing who has been created and think that there's any other hierarchy than the creator is above the created? But we as man decided otherwise. In Genesis 3, we reached out and grabbed the fruit and said, we want to be God. Or maybe in a different way, we want to be over and above, and more important than God. We rebelled. We stepped away from God's perfect creation, where we, in in light of how He created us to exist, where we turned our backs and said, we can do it somehow better than you planned and created us to be. We sinned. We could look further. We could move forward in the story a bit and we could see the Ten Commandments. If you want to turn there, you're more than welcome to, but you don't have to. I'm just going to paraphrase a few. We could turn forward to the Ten Commandments and we could get stuck on the very first one. You shall have no other gods before me. See, we live in a time where we have been lied to by Satan and powers of darkness and demons and all the things that you might want to personify and We have been lied to and told that we no longer struggle with this commandment. In the ancient world, monotheism, or the belief in one singular God, was completely and totally bonkers. Everybody on earth, except for the people of God, believed that there were many, many gods. God of fertility, God of land, the sun god, the moon god, the water gods. There was gods for everything. And then the people of Israel came with the word of God and they said, no, there's actually only one God. And everybody went, you're crazy. But we no longer live in a world where there are many gods. At least that's what we tell ourselves. We live in a world that's predominantly marked, especially in America, by monotheistic monotheistic belief. 
monotheistic, there we go, belief. That if you do, in fact, believe in, a God, in any kind of God or any kind of deity, you believe in one deity. Now we go into the eastern, into more eastern parts of the world. That changes a little bit, but by and large, this is where we live. And so for some reason, we think that we're no longer in danger of breaking the first commandment. We shall have no other gods before God, before Yahweh. But if we're real and honest with each other, we recognize that there are many, many things that vie for our attention as God. God is our provider, our protector, our creator and sustainer. And I can bet you that all four of those descriptions that I've just given, we can give all four of those descriptions to something else. My work ethic is my provider. My home and my alarm system and my guns are my protectors. My discipline is my strength. My righteous actions are my salvation. See, the difference between us now and them then is that we're intellectually inhonest. They were just real, and they said, well, we're going to put these things in front of us as if they're something important. We're just going to call them a person. We're going to build an image, and we're going to make a likeness of, of something, and we're going to say, this is a deity, this is God. They were more honest than we are today. Many of us, all of us, every single person in this room, puts value in things that are not God. And then we place the value of those things above the value that we place in our great God. We sin. Or maybe the second commandment, we also get this one confused because we don't think that we have pagan gods and so to make an image of something else. You know, what's really scary to me is that we make an image of God. How many of us, if I, close your eyes for a second. Don't be scared. Close your eyes for a second. Picture Jesus. Who's Jesus? Probably for most of us, a middle-aged white man with nice curly black hair. Why? Jesus was a Middle Eastern man of no reputation physically. You can open your eyes now. We, we have taken the image of Jesus, or what Jesus actually would have looked like, and we have shifted it to better imitate us because we are so image related that we twist and we skew him. And maybe we think that race doesn't matter for us when we think of Jesus being a white middle aged man. But again, I don't know if we're being intellectually honest with ourselves. He's similar to us, so we can relate better to him. But maybe we should be challenged in that he's not very similar to us, and we should be challenged to be more similar to him. Jesus tells us that if we hate in our hearts, we've murdered. If we lust in our hearts, we've committed adultery. There's also a commandment in there about honoring your father and your mother. We're sinners. And what's crazy is that I don't need to tell any of you this. 
You are in this place because you know that you are a sinner and that you're here for a reason to hear about a man who came to this earth to rescue us. And if you're not here for that, this is going to sound wrong, but just leave. There's no reason for you to be here if you're not here because you know that you're broken and you know that you need a Savior. The Bible teaches us that we are not the saviors of our own lives. Jesus is, period. And what's so wonderful and crazy about that message is that it's not because Jesus knew that once he saved us, he would, we would change and we would be worthy of being, being rescued. No. Probably the complete opposite is true. I know better now than I did before I was saved by Christ. And yet I still sin. It's probably worse now. But I have a Savior in Jesus. Freely giving His blood and His body on the cross so that me, Ryan Klossel, 2,000 years later, might know Him. And you. Amen? That's a good story, right? For me... This story has changed my life. I don't think that in my youth I was a a horrible human being. I wasn't a murderer, literal murderer. I wasn't a drug dealer. I didn't do drugs. I relatively obeyed my parents. I I was nice and respectful. I I was a good person, but I wasn't. When I compare myself to the pages of Scripture and what Scripture calls me to be, I know just how much of a wretch I really was. And then God redeemed me. And my life changed. Dramatically. Not subtly. I can think of other people without what is it going to benefit to me. No, I still make mistakes. I still sin. I think many of you can relate. Right? I know many of you can relate because I I knew some of you before you knew Jesus and I know you now. It's one of my favorite things as a pastor. To get to see people who were dead, who are now alive. Isn't that great? We all probably know at least someone, if we can't look at ourselves and think that, we can look at somebody else and go, something happened to them. Life changed for them because of the story. So let me ask you a question. And it's a question that I've been asking myself for two weeks. Or longer than this, but a lot the last two weeks. Then why on earth do we keep it to ourselves? If the Browns win the Super Bowl, I can guarantee you at least half of the men in this room will post something about it on Facebook. And everybody that you're posting to knows that the Browns just won the Super Bowl. We're not sharing new information. 
And yet, we have this story that many people don't know about. And what do we do? We, we keep our mouths shut because we're afraid. We're afraid to change their lives. It's stunning to me. It's convicting to me. To think that for seven years, preaching was the method by which I chose to tell people about Jesus. And I repent of it. I ask the forgiveness of the Lord, and I ask now the forgiveness of you. But I'm going to challenge you. I think many of us should also repent. Many of you should also repent. I don't think this church is marked by discipleship. I think there's a couple things in the next two weeks that we're going to talk about that I don't think this church is marked by. That starts with me. I'll be the first to admit it. And over the next couple weeks, I hope that changes. I trust that that will change. Let's look at this passage for a minute. Matthew 16 here. Well, I'm So as they came together, verse 16, they came together as Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Jesus, they worshipped him. This should probably always be our first response, right? Is to worship God for what he has done for us. It's interesting that we have this little note here that some doubted. I think that should give us courage. Our goal is not to change everyone. It sounds really bad, but I think that that's the truth. I think there's a reality that there's going to be people who will simply always reject Jesus. And we can't allow that to be discouraging to us because that's not our job. Our job is not about to bring changed lives in everybody that we encounter. Our job is to quite simply do the things that God has commanded us to do. And then we have this note. And literarily speaking, it's a bookend. It says in verse 18, Jesus says to them, All authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. And then in verse 20, it says, it says at the very end, And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus tells us that all authority, all power has been given to him, and he will go with us everywhere. Because again, it's not our responsibility to have the power to change people's lives. We have to do the things that Jesus calls us to do. And he will do the rest. Jesus calls us to something. He says in verse 19, Go therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I will be with you always. There's a couple things that we're told to do here. We're told first to make disciples. Discipleship is not a word that we typically use in the evangelical church, which is really quite sad. 
We use other words like accountability partners, fellowship groups, and small groups. And we don't use the term that Scripture actually tells us to use, discipleship, because we're afraid that people are going to be afraid of the Bible. How absurd! But discipleship was an actual thing in the ancient world. It wasn't just this concept about sharing the gospel with people that you might encounter. It was about purposefully and actively seeking people out that are in your life and bringing them into your life. Jesus goes to Peter, James, and John and and the other of the apostles and he sees them and he goes, You, come and follow me. And they left their boats, they left their stuff, they left their jobs, And they literally lived with Jesus for three whole years. Now, many of us probably can't invite another person into our homes to have have them live with us. But we can certainly be more involved in the lives of people who are around us. Especially the people in the church. We can regularly get together with smaller numbers of people and read the Bible together. And and Wednesday evening Bible study is good, but there's too many people to be intimate. See, Jesus picked out Peter, James, and John out of the 12 apostles to be extremely intimate with. Yes, the 12 apostles went with Jesus a lot of places, but Peter, James, and John got to go up on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John got to go in and see Jesus raise little Tabitha from the dead. Peter, James, and John get to go further up on Mount Gethsemane when Jesus is praying right before his death. Peter, James, and John were intimate with Jesus. This is what discipleship is. And just so everybody's aware, that is a little bit scary. That means I'm going to have to be vulnerable, extremely and completely open and vulnerable with people so that I can help Lead them and guide them, right? Because it's not just about being with people. Jesus says, making disciples of all nations. We'll get back to that in a second. We baptize those who didn't know Jesus, who now knows Jesus, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then we teach them to observe all the things that I have commanded. Huh. It's not legalistic teaching. It's not setting up rules and regulations. This is quite simply helping people to understand what it means. Because for many people, especially those who never grew up in church, which are people we should be discipling, they've never read the Bible. Let me let you in on a little secret. The Bible can be confusing. It can be difficult when you first encounter it. And there's a reason for that. It was never meant to be encountered by itself. It is a lie to think that we cannot, we can be Christians by ourselves with the Bible. God created this church for the purpose of making disciples, teaching others what it means to follow after Christ. It's a challenge. It's difficult. But at the same time, it's simple. It's not complex. It's not not a 12-step program. It's a one-step program. Go. Go and share life together. I'm going to let you in on another little secret. Many of you are probably thinking to yourselves, but I don't know anything about the Bible. You're right. Probably. 
And that's maybe a mark of not having discipleship going on. But it's also a mark of you not going. I learn more when I prepare for a sermon than I do in any other situation. And I can tell you just off the top of my head about six other people that I know, personally know, who have preached or taught a Bible study who would say the exact same thing. When you make an effort to know the Bible enough to share it with somebody else, you learn more than you do in any other situation because God created us to be in community with each other. And so maybe you don't know. But that doesn't doesn't say, once you know, then go make disciples. Jesus sends out the disciples before he dies. Do you know this? In In the book of Mark, it's like, It's like a week after he calls them, maybe a little bit longer than that. It's very soon after he calls them to be disciples. And he says, they don't even have the whole story yet. And Jesus is like, go and tell people about it. About what? We don't know the whole story yet. You haven't died yet. He doesn't send them out just now. He sent them out before they knew. He sends us out before we got all the answers. You don't have all the answers. I have been studying this book for for 12 years, trying to be a, a a smart person and a pastor to be able to teach and lead. And and there are times when I read the Bible, this verse, I've read this verse a thousand times. And only in the past two weeks has it struck me as as it has right now. You don't know everything. Nor are you supposed to. We're supposed to grow together. Make disciples of all nations. That's a daunting task. I had a thought this week, and I and I don't know if it's if it's the right thought. I don't know if it's the right thought, but it doesn't I don't really I don't really know if I if it matters. But I was thinking about Jesus says that he won't return until everybody on earth has heard the message. And I wondered this week if the reason why Jesus hasn't returned is because the church has been pretty lazy when it comes to telling everybody about Jesus. That since people have not learned the message, God has been waiting patiently for his church to give the message. Make disciples of all nations. Jeff, will you turn us back to Acts? Make disciples of all nations. This in a very similar setup in Acts chapter 1, verse 6 to 11. They're gathered together. The disciples are gathered together, and Jesus is going to give them his, his last word of, of teaching. And, he, and they, they ask him, well, will you restore the kingdom of Israel? And he's like, it's not, it's not for you to know. It's not for you to know times and seasons and purposes. I think what Jesus is saying here is that so often what we do is we go, okay, what does it look like to make disciples? How many disciples should we make by X date? And Jesus is like, don't worry about that. It's not yours to know. I'll do that. I'll worry about that. The Father will worry about that. You don't have to worry about that. I'll do it in my time. Your job is to simply do the thing that I command you to do. He says, it's not, it's not for you to know. It's the Father has fixed it by his own authority. And then verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. All authority in, on heaven and earth has been given to Jesus, and He's one going to be with us always, and the Holy Spirit is going to come and, and be power. 
You're not doing it in yourself. Don't worry about the power that you need. You're not, you don't have the boldness to do it. You don't have the ability to do it. But God does. So go. And then he says this. And by the way, if you were wondering what our mission statement is here at Christ Church, it's a paraphrase of this. It says, you will be my witnesses. You will take the gospel. You will disciple all nations. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem city, Judea surrounding area, and Samaria larger surrounding area, and to the end of the earth. Our mission statement here at Christ Church is that we will proclaim the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus to Sterling City, Wayne County, larger area, Ohio, larger area, to the end of the earth. This is terrifying. Because I question if we've even actually started to share the message with even Sterling. How are we ever going to share the message with the ends of the earth? And I think, by the way, Jesus is speaking to us. He's not just saying the church as, as a whole. He's speaking to us, Christ church. We, as disciples and disciplers, can affect the knowledge of Jesus to the whole of the earth. But we can't do that until we do the simple first. I think what God calls us to do is He calls us to do the simple. And when we submit to the simple, He will bring the complex. That when we learn to do the thing simply, He will multiply it as He sees fit. So we don't look, how can I affect the world now? We look, how can I affect Sterling? How can I affect the person who sits next to me at church? This message that so affects our lives is absolutely worth sharing. Isn't it? So I guess my challenge is, what are we going to do about it? Maybe the next question is, how are we going to do it? That's what we're going to look at next week. I'm going to cheat a little bit. If you look forward just a little bit in your your Bibles, and I don't have it up on the screen, so you're going to have to turn there in your own Bibles, to chapter 2 of the book of Acts, verse 42. I think I think our author Luke gives us the answer. Peter preaches this sermon. And by the way, it's not really that crazy of a sermon. It's simple and basic. It's not complex and fancy. And 3,000 people turn their lives over to Jesus. One sermon. Shocking. So now we have this church of about 3,000 people And what are they going to do? It says in verse 42, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, the breaking of bread, and the prayers. Now next week we're going to talk about how we're doing okay in some of these areas and how we're failing in some of these areas. But this is it. How do I make disciples? I first do the simple. I devote myself to the Word of God to being with other believers in fellowship, 
to sharing meals with each other, and to prayer. It's not complex. It's simple. Let us do the simple things first and let God make and let God bring the complex. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I think it's so easy to be challenged by Scripture. It's easy to hear it and be challenged by it. Maybe not do anything about it. Father, give us a, a belief and a faith that would embolden us and move us. Empower us with your spirit that we know is already in our lives, moving and directing us. Get our stubborn hearts and stubborn minds out of the way. And let's be willing to serve you simply. Father, we thank you. We praise you. We glorify your name because your son Jesus has shed his blood and freed us so that we can live for you. We pray this in your precious and holy Son's name.